Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Cleese Smith. Later in the show, Hoyoke Hispanic Heritage historian Maria Salgada Cartagena, who's been chronicling the history of Puerto Ricans in the paper city. And we'll talk with Dean Sycon, the dean of Dean's Beans Coffee fame, who is trying his hand at fiction with his new novel about displacement and return with his new book, Finding Home, Hungary, 1945. Our first guest is John Kroll, who is running for mayor of Pittsfield. He and candidate Peter Marchetti will face off in the general election on November 7th to decide who will replace outgoing Pittsfield Mayor Linda Tyre. John Kroll leads 180 Media, a marketing firm based in Pittsfield. The firm specializes in brand development, market analysis, and creative content development. Mr. Kroll has served for a decade on the city council, including two terms as the council vice president. He also held key positions in several healthcare organizations, including Berkshire Healthcare Systems. He served as the public affairs coordinator in the office of the mayor in the city of Pittsfield, and he was part of the team that recruited the Barrington Stage Company to downtown Pittsfield, brought the Colonial Theater online after a community project to renovate the theater, and was involved in the opening of the Beacon Cinema. John Kroll was also the creator, host, and producer of Good Morning Pittsfield on WTBR, part of a volunteer effort to rescue that station. He did the first daily live radio and television program every weekday at 7.30 a.m., which ran through uh, 2018. He's going to take over this show. No, no, just kidding. I made that part (laughs) up. Uh, His mayoral challenger, Peter Marchetti, will join us Wednesday on this show. John Kroll joins us now. Thank you so much, John. Oh, Monty, thank you so much. I and think it's please, more that you uh, have great things to commiserate to, to about. You. Thanks for doing this. So. <laughs> it's our pleasure, yes. And now we uh, we were both morning show hosts, so we can commiserate about that early morning schedule. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Love it. Love it. <laughs> um, why don't you give us the elevator pitch as to why you want to be the mayor of Pittsfield? Well, I look at this city of Pittsfield, and there is so much potential that we have not tapped yet. And we are in the heart of the culturally rich Berkshires, as you know, and the reputation of the Berkshires is uh, certainly uh, well-deserved, but Pittsfield has always been a little bit behind on that. Here we are, the largest city in the Berkshires. We are the hub of so many different elements of the Berkshires, and yet we haven't really been able to capture that piece of the cultural economy that would help our city thrive in the way that really it it can. And as you mentioned, I was a part of the Roberto administration in the mid-2000s that did recruit Barrington Stage Company, and the Colonial Theater was finished, and we actually got a six green stadium seat theater uh, into the downtown uh, for films, the Beacon Cinema, which was an incredible project, and it brought millions of dollars of investment for downtown living. And we do focus a lot in downtown Pittsfield because really it is the lifeblood of the city. If you can really get the downtown right, uh, it can really elevate uh, the rest of the community. But overall, I'm a dad. Uh, I have three boys in our Pittsfield public schools, uh, and I have a stepdaughter who's at Pittsfield High School, my alma mater. And uh, this city is near and dear to my heart. I coach baseball here. Uh, As you mentioned, I spent all those years getting up every morning uh, to save uh, WTBR, the radio station. But it was fun. It was a labor of love as well. And it helped me understand truly the people in our community on a deeper, deeper level. Today, I do a podcast where we do uh, episodes that range from 45 minutes to two plus hours. So um, I really get into the depth of these conversations. And I think uh, having a mayor who is a listener and someone who's able to really be entrepreneurial as taking the best ideas from the people in our community, uh, I think that's what Pittsfield needs because it's not reinventing the wheel. We really can do some amazing things in our city, but, uh, but it takes uh, entrepreneurial spirit 
uh, and it takes a can-do attitude. And that's really what I'm going to bring to the mayor's office. We had some excellent questions from our NEPM News Department's Nancy Cohen, who's been covering the mayoral race and covering Pittsfield issues in general. She'll actually be joining us in the studio when we talk uh, with your competitor on Wednesday. But some of the questions she had to do had to do with uh, wanted to ask had to do with reducing violence and, and crime in the city. What do you think should be doing uh, differently now? If you were to become mayor, what would you do differently to help reduce crime and violence? I think in the, city? the one fundamental shift that we can do in public safety. Uh, is to truly recommit to community policing in the city of Pittsfield. And um, it is clear, and I think we've had this conversation many times, uh, and the last police chief that we had was there for uh, well over a decade. And the philosophy there was, look, I want to be the most efficient with my officer's time. So the most efficient way to get from one side of the city to another or to get to a crime uh, in progress or, or uh, a call is to get there in their cruiser. And so uh, many people in our neighborhoods and in our downtown have felt as though, no, we really need our police officers to step out of the cruisers and begin to engage in uh, community policing once again, which was uh, the norm um, some some years ago in the city of Pittsfield. So I would like to bring that back, uh, engage our police department into the community. Um, but also when it comes to um, you know safety, it's much bigger than the police department. Um, it's about investment in our neighborhoods that often uh, are left behind. And that is our West Side uh, neighborhood. Uh, for example, I represented the West Side for a decade on the city council. So I think we really need to focus on thinking about economic development and uh, backing it up with some intelligent code enforcement. Uh, because when people are investing in the neighborhoods that need help, they also need to be supported by making sure that properties that are not uh, you know, being kept up to code, uh, that we help address those. So I think it's a, it's certainly, it's multifaceted. There's no question about it. You know, safety in a, in a community is not a, uh, something you can, uh, really nail down in a, in a, a one minute conversation or two minutes. But I think those are the key pieces, community policing, engaging with the community and supporting those who are investing in some of those, uh, in some of the areas that are, that are more challenging. Um, the West Side neighborhood and the Morningside neighborhood in particular in Pittsfield. I think that actually dovetails really uh, nicely into a question that we have about houselessness, um, homelessness. There's a, a housing shortage across the state. That's just kind mm. of how it is in Massachusetts. But how do you think that you'll address the challenges of folks without homes and folks looking for housing in Pittsfield? Yeah, I mean, that is a challenge everywhere. Um, I look at some of the creative things that have been done in uh, the private sector um, and in working together with uh, the city. Um, we have to create more units in Pittsfield, market rate housing, affordable housing, uh, and uh, for those who are um, in, in that transition uh, of homelessness and uh, in that um, scenario. So uh, for me, I look at uh, a great example, uh, Lee Bank, uh, which invested in Pittsfield, they built a bank branch, but then they realized we already have the foundation built. Why don't we think uh, bigger and we'll build up and they actually built housing units on top of that bank branch. And banks are typically not the um, uh, foremost in creativity when it comes to <laughs> development, uh, with all due respect. They own your but house. I they don't usually build your house. <laughs> I mean, it makes so, it easier for I mortgage think, payments. Yeah, right. You just drop it yeah, down, yeah, yeah. Drop it down the, a laundry chute. Um, so, 
<laughs> so I think those are the kinds of things we have to think about when uh, these developers uh, are looking at building. So, for example, there's uh, Bank North, uh, which uh, is looking to build a new branch in the city. It's a much bigger piece of property. So we have to be working with them and encouraging them to create units. There are other uh, areas, uh, particularly in the downtown, actually, uh, where there's been uh, no development for five years in one of our key buildings, and that is the Wright Building, uh, W-R-I-G-H-T, uh, in the heart of downtown Pittsfield. And that is supposed to have market rate housing and retail on the bottom. It's remained vacant for the last five years, undeveloped. So I think uh, getting uh, a sense of urgency on some of these projects that are already um, that that should be already uh, uh, moving ahead, we got to get those going. Um, and then also, you know, thinking creatively because we do have a lot of empty lots in Pittsfield because we went through a couple of decades where, when we were looking at dilapidated housing, there were a lot of demos, uh, demolitions. Um, so I think we have to look at those empty vacant lots and say, okay, how can we bring in habitat? for humanity uh, to do a project here? How can we find ways to build affordable housing um, in, in those kinds of ways? And I think a lot of that is partnering, creativity, and, um, and ultimately understanding that we just need more units, and that has to be a priority. We're speaking with John Kroll, who's running for mayor of Pittsfield against Peter Marchetti, who'll join us Wednesday on the show. They will find we'll find out who'll replace the mayor of Pittsfield, Mayor Linda Tyre, on November 7th. I've watched a couple of the debates between you and your opponent uh, through the Berkshire Eagles. who's done great work covering this. They're remarkably peaceable, no uh, major histrionics, but there was some drama in the campaign a couple weeks ago, a story from our very own Nancy Cohen. Uh, from New England Public Media, Pittsfield candidate for mayor is accused of theft. He says it was an oversight. Uh, it seems to be uh, uh, having to do with the nonprofit Animal Dreams and annual reports that were filed with the state and uh, accounting. Do you want to talk about that? And if people heard that story, what's your take on what happened? And if people are concerned that it was an accounting issue, should you be at the helm of the account of the entire city of Pittsfield? Absolutely. And uh, there's no question that this is something that occurred four years ago. I've been open and uh, honest about everything that transpired. It was a mistake. Uh, and I certainly walked into the Berkshire Eagle and provided all the evidence uh, that that was the case. Um, I think uh, they certainly you know, have shown their hand uh, in this race. The Berkshire Eagle is uh, absolutely in support of my opponent. And that's, uh, and that's just the way it is in Pittsfield politics right now. Um, but uh, I have been open and honest about this uh, entire uh, scenario. And I think um, one of the things that you know we need to look at uh, as it relates to the city of Pittsfield is say, hey, you know, uh, you you want me to show your my hand? Absolutely, I will do that. And I think the city of Pittsfield needs to be very clear and transparent in the way that it approaches. Uh, its budget. So that's one of the things that I'm doing is making sure that uh, we move ahead to be very clear as to what our plans are for fiscal transparency for the city of Pittsfield. And one of those things is to create the position of an internal auditor for the city of Pittsfield, which would not report to the mayor. And I think that's critically important. As we just saw recently, there was uh, some significant uh, deficiency as it relates to the ARPA funds in the city of Pittsfield, uh, which uh, just uh, came out recently uh, at a city council meeting. And uh, now we recognize that the administration actually did not share that audit with the city council. So there are some major transparency issues in the city of Pittsfield as it relates to its finances. So there are more questions uh, that are coming out about that. 
and we'll continue on that. But I think this is evidence that shows we have to have proper protocols in place, including an internal auditor, including a new external auditor that's never done work for the city of Pittsfield before, and the director of finance that is not a part of the establishment politics in Pittsfield. So, um, so transparency goes all the way around. So, uh, so let's do it. It seems like there's a, a cultural revitalization that has happened in, in Pittsfield over the past, like let's say, two decades. But Pittsfield seems to have been a little bit slower in recovering from the loss of its GE factory. What do you think you can do about job development in your potential first term as mayor? Yeah, I think really we need to... I mean, there, there's, there's a couple of ways of looking at economic development. I think it's interesting that you bring up GE because I feel as though the economic development focus uh, right now is still a little bit tied to the idea of GE and bringing in the quote unquote big fish uh, to save the day. Mm -hmm. Now, would we like to bring in 100 or 200 jobs uh, in manufacturing? Absolutely. Or 500 jobs? That would be fantastic. And, you know, we continue to have strength as it relates to general dynamics and, and some other large employers. But as it relates to economic development, we have to start thinking about our community and what makes Pittsfield a more attractive place to live. So for example, uh, there's a friend of mine, Melissa Fawcett, she created an indoor playground called Ready, Set, Play. She received no bank financing for that. Uh, she employs about a dozen people there. And it's something that has now drawn families back to Pittsfield where they were once going to Holyoke or they were once uh, having to travel to Albany or to Connecticut to do fun things with their family. So I think we need to think about these things, creating a, a greater quality of life for young families to make Pittsfield more attractive. And then ultimately that brings uh, more business. You know, for example, um, I can imagine a lot of businesses would love to set up shop and say Northampton, you know, what a great city, you know, it's a, it's got energy in the downtown. It's a collection. I, and I, you know, Northampton probably better than me, but um, so, uh, but I love going to Northampton. Um, it's enjoyable. Um, and, uh, you know, places like that. So when you create the atmosphere, especially when people are working from home and they can choose where they live, if you have a decent cost of living and a great place to live, that can be an economic boon for a community. So, yes, we definitely want to redevelop the GE site and draw some manufacturing in. But at the same time, I think we need to be enhancing some of our family portfolio, as it were, how do we make the community more attractive? Um, how do we, yeah, and we've talked about these things, creating a district, even having a, a location where there's uh, rock climbing and a trampoline park and uh, laser tag, that sort of thing. I think, you know, it's totally sounds, coming now. Uh, you know, <laughs> maybe sort of uh, soft skill on, on some of these things, but hey, guess what? People like that stuff. So yes. we have to think about it that way, especially in the culturally rich Berkshires, where a lot of our economy is about having people come to a location where there's a lot of fun things to do or they enjoy. Um, so I think that's important. We're speaking with John Kroll, who's running for mayor of Pittsfield. His his uh, component, his opponent, Peter Marchetti, will join us on Wednesday. A final question for you, John. What do you think most separates your campaign from Peter Marchetti's campaign? What, what would the administration of John Kroll look like in fundamentally different from Peter Marchetti? I think it is truly that entrepreneurial spirit that uh, I will bring uh, to the mayor's office. You know, we've talked about from the very beginning that we're going to have the most accessible mayor's office in the history of this city. Um, if you haven't been to Pittsfield, you may not know this, but City Hall, 
has four entrances and three of them have been closed since COVID. And that's not acceptable. Uh, we have to create a culture of openness. Uh, I plan to have a weekly open press conference. So the NEPN uh, reporter can come on in with everybody else. Uh, <laughs> you hear that, Nancy? You better put it on have, your calendar. And not have any particular reason. <laughs> Just come in every Thursday at uh, 3 o'clock or whatever time we choose. That sort of thing. And also uh, in the mayor's office, you should have the ability to pick up the phone. Uh, call the mayor's office and have a human being pick up that phone uh, and and answer you because I think we really have to get that human touch back into things. But when it comes to uh, my background, I have a diverse background of being a business owner, uh, being a communicator, uh, being someone who has worked outside of Pittsfield. You know, I went to the University of Pennsylvania as my uh, college, so uh, so I, I know Philadelphia uh, as as a model as well. I've worked near Boston, so I've seen many different communities, and I want to bring all the best of the best that I have learned through my years and through the corporate world and through different experiences, including government, uh, back uh, to uh, Pittsfield in an entrepreneurial spirit that will really revitalize this city. You know, we talked about uh, bringing back the passion, uh, reigniting the passion uh, in our city. And that's really what we had in the mid 2000s. We used to talk about Pittsfield being the greatest small city in the Northeast. And that was our goal. And we said it and we believed it. It wasn't something we said with irony or uh, or anything like that. We truly, truly believed it because we had a vision and everybody joined in. So that's the kind of energy that I want to bring back, because when you have that vision and you work for the city, it seems like, wow, I can be a part of something bigger. And that's the kind of leadership that that I'm going to bring. Um, I'm not going to be a micromanager. Uh, I'll manage where I need to, and our department heads will certainly report to me. And and that in internal auditor is certainly going to help with uh, city processes. Um, what I want to do is inspire people to do better. And I think we really can, and we're ready for it in the city of Pittsfield. John Kroll is running for mayor of Pittsfield. His opponent will join us on Wednesday. Shall just add as a final touch that you look remarkably like Jimmy Kimmel. And the whole time I <laughs> was talking to you over this, I was like, I think Jimmy Kimmel is running for the mayor of Pittsfield. He's not true. Uh, that is John Kroll. And uh, the election is but Tuesday, November 7th. But now you've got your, holiday, your Halloween costume And the same initials, set. too, I guess, right? Oh, yeah, yeah it's JK. Initials, so. Wow, look at that. JK for mayor. <laughs> John Kroll, thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you, Monty. Hey, great meeting you. Great meeting you. Really nice seeing you. Yeah, cheers. Later in the show, local coffee legend turned fiction author Dean Sikon on his new book, Finding Home, Hungary, 1945. And up next, Maria Cartagena chronicling the Puerto Rican history of Holyoke. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, helping customers make the switch to solar for savings, energy security, and tax incentives. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. I just got her from the other room, so I don't know where I am in my script right now, but I've <laughs> now found out... I've Peel now bought myself time, as they say. Peel back the veil entirely. Uh, yes, despite the fact that Hispanic Heritage these aren't Month. Real conversations these aren't real. This is not out. live radio. <laughs> what is happening? What is happening, Maria? <laughs> We're so sorry. Despite the fact that Hispanic Heritage Month technically ended yesterday, we wanted to talk to as many people about Hispanic histories no matter when. 
So, yes, Hispanic Heritage Month ended yesterday. But we want to learn from Maria Salgado Cartagena about the Puerto Rican history of Holyoke. Maria, we met uh, a little over a year ago at the closing of Fernandez Family Restaurant in Holyoke. We, Calice and I, went, we were with our previous radio station. We're there eating with our mutual friend, Neftali Duran, who lives in Holyoke. And uh, tell us why that place is so important to the history of Holyoke. I mean, I think the Fernandezes represent really the best of our people um, tr- coming from the island to really like many other folks trying to create an opportunity for themselves, right? The, everybody um, aspires to have the quote-unquote American dream. Mm-hmm. And I think for the Fernandezes, they're the epitome of that for the Puerto Rican community. You have to remember that when Puerto Ricans came to Holyoke in big numbers in the 70s. And, you know, paper and the big companies were already leaving as early as 1930s. Um, And so really, Puerto Ricans, when they came to Holyoke, all those opportunities were already leaving. And so we had to create our own opportunities. And for a lot of people, that meant entrepreneurship. Um, And so the Fernandeses were one of those examples. Um, and so we're all super proud of them. And they retired of their own accord. It mm-hmm. wasn't for financial reasons. It was they were getting a little bit older and Absolutely. they wanted to retire. The other children weren't as interested in keeping it going. But it was amazing to be there uh, and see Mayor Joshua Garcia, who's also Puerto Rican, was there uh, to, to send this family off that had such an important piece of the puzzle of Puerto Ricans in Holyoke. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, you know, um, some of us still kind of grieve that a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I <you> bet. Know? <laughs> the um, food was so good. The food was <laughs> fantastic. It was phenomenal. And it was just such a gathering place for mm-hmm. us, you know, as a people. Like, yeah. people would often be like, oh, Maria, can I interview you? Where can I interview you? And I'd always choose Fernandez because it wasn't just a place to go eat. It was family. Yeah. Yeah. It's those community places are Absolutely. really like super important. But what we learned beyond like the Fernandez's import in the community there was how large a grasp you have on the history of Puerto Rico, the Puerto Rican people in Holyoke and beyond. And then I realized afterwards that pretty much if I'd been at almost any like culturally important event in Holyoke. I saw you there. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, recently we just saw each other at the uh, Ethnic Studies Archival Project uh, at Wisteria Hearst Museum. Um, and for me, it's super important that because a lot of our history is this oral history, no one's actually written a book until I I produce my own. Um, and so a lot of our history isn't documented in the same way that maybe other groups' history has been, right? Um, And so it's important for me to make sure that this oral history that I have, I share with the young people. You know, I remind Josh all the time that he stands on the shoulders of women of color. Ah, um, The mayor of Holyoke. The mayor, the first Puerto Rican mayor. And that, in (laughs) fact, these partnerships between colleges and Holyoke early in the 1980s, we had predicted that by the year 2020-something, we would have enough numbers um, to be able to elect a Puerto Rican mayor. Um, and so, you know, that's a constant reminder for me to be able to hold that knowledge to understand that we were foreseeing the future, right? Um, and so, yeah, those are the kind of things that as I, 
I'm, by the way, I usually say that I'm an elder in training. I'm not quite there yet. A young elder, as they say, in the, reservation a young dogs. Elder. Exactly. <laughs> um, it's, it's just for me to be able to see these things that we worked so hard in the 70s and 80s, organizing, um, making sure that we were getting out the electrical vote, the electric vote um, organizing around housing and the fires. To see these things come to fruition now is just a reminder that I'm getting older, one. <laughs> <laughs> but really is a victory. You know, it's almost similar in a smaller scale than the black community and African-American community seeing be, uh, Obama being elected, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. That's a local win and victory for us. We're speaking with Maria Salgado Cartagena, who is a community-based learning director at the Weissman Center for Leadership at Mount Holyoke College, but is also the historian of Holyoke. I'm going to call you that if that's okay. Well, I mean, thank you. Did you say you had a book out or you will have a book out? I am writing a, a book as, as we speak. It's, I love it. Uh, it's, evolving. Um, Last week at the Wiseman Center for Leadership, we had this Latinas and Leadership panel, which Gladys Lebron Martinez reminded me um, how we did that organizing electrical electrical politics organizing, um, which was really like an amazing uh, strategy to get the vote out. Because in Puerto Rico, people vote for different reasons than in the U.S. When they come here, we don't understand what's happening. And so Nueva Esperanza, in its heyday, in the 80s, did all that type of organizing. So getting the register to vote. Um, in fact, one of the reasons that I think in the state of Massachusetts we have this way of easy way of um, registering to vote was really in the beginnings of our organizing days. Like, why aren't we making this easier for people to register to vote, right? And I think that those conversations across Massachusetts, in particularly marginalized communities, really came to this place. Again, these little wins that we've been able to to celebrate. So yeah, I'm working on a book. Um, You know, if I ever hit that, like, Powerball or something, then I can retire <laughs> early and just focus on writing the book. But otherwise, you got to fit it in. But otherwise, I've got to fit it into doing. my exactly the uh, the other twenty roles that I play. In, you can retire own. like our next guest, who um, then released his first book of fiction. So there you go. That's one option right there. But he had to retire to do. That. I know exactly. We're speaking with Maria Salgado <laughs> Cartagena about the Puerto Rican history of Holyoke. One question I always have, and I love learning about these things, is what is the anchor that brought so many people from Puerto Rico to specifically? Holyoke. Yes, that's a great question. Um, And I think what we have to understand is we have to know what the relationship of Puerto Rico to the U.S. is to begin with, right? right? Um, And so many Puerto Ricans came through that whole, uh, they call it Mano a la Obras, um, which was a a policy that was imposed in Puerto Rico to bring people to work in the states in order for the governor at the time to industrialize the island, right? And so you have to understand those politics to understand the migration of Puerto Ricans. I think a lot of Puerto Ricans ended up in New York, big cities like New York, Chicago. And then through that 91, 391 corridor, people ended up in Holyoke. Uh Um, Mostly, not primarily men, but mostly men to work in the tobacco fields. And Mm -hmm. even though the tobacco fields were in Connecticut, uh, 
Holyoke was sort of like a nice place to stay. In fact, the flats of Holyoke is sort of known as Little Havana. I mean, Little Salinas, mm-hmm. very similar to like Little Havana in, in Miami, because many of our residents in the flats are from Salinas. So it's this communal thing, right? So the Fernandezes probably came. Mr. Fernandez sent for his brother. Right. You know, so it's that thing. Um, and so I think once that that housing was still ch- relatively cheap. We won't talk about housing now because yes. um, <laughs> I heard the other segment. <laughs> but housing was relatively cheap. And also, Holyoke was, in from its inception, a, a city that was stratified. So people, poor people, lived in downtown. Workers lived in downtown. And then as you socially and economically and politically worked your I use the quotes work very loosely, (laughs) work your way up, you move down from downtown to up the hill. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think what happened with Puerto Ricans is that downtown just became home, right? If you went anywhere, you can find a Spanish-speaking person. Yeah. You know, if you services, like, so, you know, you have the Holyoke Health Center. Um, You just have everything very easily accessible in that downtown area. Um, and so that just, and then you have family, right? Again, Fernandez, that restaurant was home to me. Um, and so then you just create community and family and people, people know each other. I mean, my kids always said, I could, we could never get away with anything because you, you knew this side of Holyoke. (laughs) Our uncle knew that side of Holyoke. (laughs) So they're like, we would know we would get in trouble if. Like we did anything, and that's community. And that's community. It takes exactly. a village. Absolutely. <laughs> We're speaking with Maria Salgado Cartagena, who is part of the community-based learning center at Mount Holyoke College, but also an unofficial historian of Holyoke. And I feel like that role must have come out of of this, like of your connection to to Holyoke and its history and its its community there. How has that role at Mount Holyoke reflected on on your interaction with the city? Yeah, I mean, I say this all the time. I think this role opened up for me at the right exact time. Um, Mount Holyoke just um, appointed its uh, its first black uh, president. Um, which we're excited about. Uh, and for me, I think the one, a couple things that I bring to the table, because I bring a lot of things to the table. <laughs> sure but do. definitely is this intense knowledge and history of Holyoke, right? And its relationship to the five colleges. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for me in this role, there's a couple things that um, I have as goals. One is really how to, you know, it's interesting. What separates Mount Holyoke and Holyoke? Yeah. It's a bridge. Mm-hmm. Yep. So for me, as the director of community-based learning, what's that bridge that I want to create between our institution and the city that's beyond just extracting knowledge, right? That's beyond just us being an official. But really, my my passion work is to make sure to develop students in understanding sort of you're not going to Holyoke to change anything or save anybody, Right. In fact, you can come back understanding some things. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Because we have these in like these real community wise um, knowledge keepers. 
right? And so that, I think, is one of the many reasons that I'm in this position and that I contribute that sort of lens. Having been someone in Holyoke, having hosted thousands of students um, in my many roles, like understanding that we're not going there to save anybody. We're, what, what can we do? How can we, you know, be hand in hand with whatever's happening and bring human power to that? Right. Is there like does Nueva Esperanza need a research project on like what's really happening with gentrification? I mean, that's a real word. Yes. Um, And so like what is happening? How do we document that? How do we connect with community organizations doing really great work, especially around issues of social justice? And like how do we support that work? Not how do we save that work or giving our thoughts, but what is it that that the community really, truly needs and how we have a supportive role in that? It's more about empowerment than Absolutely. saving. Absolutely. We're speaking with Maria Salgado, Carte, Salgado Cartagena. Um, and you mentioned before how proud you were when Mayor Joshua Garcia, the first Puerto Rican mayor, became mayor, but reminded him that he stands on the shoulders of Latinas from that city, one of whom is your mother, which is why you use the Salgado name in some of your communiques. But before we let you go, tell us a couple of the other like important women of Holyoke who, who built the especially Puerto Rican Holyoke up in this way. We talked last week with Nueva Esperanza uh, about Carlos Vega. There's a there's a, a square named after him. He's uh, he's often lauded. But who right. are the people that maybe we don't hear as much about? Oh, my gosh. I mean, I'm going to start with my mother, right? Yeah. Maria Berrios um, Salgado, who really it's interesting. I would my mom would always say, oh, we did all this mobilizing. And, I, you know, I went to Westerhurst Museum and found this picture and it was my mom in this protest in 1984 after this these fires the slew of fires were happening in South Holyoke um, and everybody around her were our neighbors and so I knew that she had had a hand on mobilizing those people mm-hmm. right so that's my first role model um, but you know as a first generation sort of quote-unquote professional there were people like Gladys Lebro Martinez, Betty Medina Lichtenstein, who was the first woman to be elected in the state of Massachusetts to our school committee. Um, first there, Puerto Rican woman? P- first Puerto Rican woman mm-hmm. to be elected to uh, the school committee in Massachusetts. Um, and that was in 1984. And, you know, Silvia Galvan, um, who produced a lot of, uh, there was a segment called Vecinos a Vecinos. I just remembered that a couple weeks ago. Put it in the book. Yes, which was this, yeah, which was this like really cool way of being in the air and the radio and letting people know like who's voting, where do you have to go vote, all of that stuff. So Silvia Galvan, I'm going to name the women. Yeah, um, yeah. We're, we're, we're looking for the women. We're for that. Lillian Santiago who now is in uh, Florida, but was an incredible entrepreneur, uh, Ward 1 city councilor, you know, took a lot of hits in that very dominant white man culture (laughs) back in the day. Um, Who else can I think about? I mean, I said uh, Ruth Cruz. I mean, there were just a slew of women of color in that neighborhood that really were about mobilizing the community. And before we, one more, who do you see coming up to take those roles now? Oh, that's such a beautiful question. I mean, I think that's why I'm, I mean, when I think of the young people at Wisteria Hearst, those are the people that I see coming up, right? The Zaire, um, the Sashas, like those, you know, the person who created that program, Naomi Robles. I mean, I don't think Naomi has any political ambition, but... I know she, one of her dreams is to become a professor. And I'm like, yes, absolutely, you can do that. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot of young 
blood. I think the thing, there's a disconnect between that history because it's not being taught in our schools um, besides a couple of ethnic studies courses and the young people who are coming up to leadership. There's a disconnect between that history and, and the people who are running now. Um, but it's beautiful. I mean, Holyoke is 50% Latino. We're not going anywhere. Now we, we see three, four generations of Puerto Ricans. Like, for instance, my kids are not connected to the island in any ways, right? But they claim Puerto Ricanness all the time. So that's, you know, that's an element that's real for, for our children. And uh, so for me, I just see, yeah, I see, I have to believe in hope. I have to believe that in order for this world to be different, we have to empower our young people. And this history is part of that. And it's the reason I need to finish this book. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have you on before the book is finished again because you're just wonderful and we love hearing these stories. It's always a joy. <laughs> Maria Salgado Cartagena, Community-Based Learning Director at the Weissman Center for Leadership at Mount Holyoke College and also Holyoke Historian. But I mean, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Go out to fun events in Holyoke. You'll probably meet her. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Up next, Dean Sykon, the dean of Dean's Beans Coffee fame, whose first book of fiction is called Finding Home, Hungry, 1945. He'll be at the Leverett Library tomorrow, and he'll join us next. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Dean Sykon is a lawyer, human rights advocate, entrepreneur, and author. You may know him as the Dean of Dean's Beans Coffee fame. <laughs> Dean recently retired as the head of that company and sold the company to his employees who are now running it as a worker-owned cooperative. His new book, his first work of fiction, is called Finding Home, Hungary 1945. Dean will be reading from this book tomorrow, Tuesday, October 17th, from 6.30 to 7.30 at the Leverett Library, and then next Tuesday... October 24th, from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. at the Jones Library in Amherst. Dean Sykin, welcome back. Hey, thanks. <laughs> Great to be back again. Yes. Finding Home, Hungry, 1945. It is a beautiful and heavy book, and especially in light of what we've been witnessing globally, this book has everything to do with displacement and an attempt to come home. Tell us where your story begins. Well, my grandmother was from Bialis, uh, from, uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Minsk, uh -huh. in what is now uh, Belarus. Uh -huh. And her family was driven out in 1905 by pogroms from Cossacks, mm -hmm. uh, Russian, you know, inspired Cossacks. And that was one of the big migrations, Jewish migrations, to New York primarily. And so that's my family's story. On Annette's side, my wife's side, her family was run out or escaped, fortunately, escaped Poland. Uh, they're Catholic, but escaped uh, the Nazis and the Russians in Poland at the war and then had to take up their lives as displaced peoples. So we've got that in our DNA. Mm -hmm. uh, I came upon th this story when I was doing research on other things going on in Eastern Europe. And I came upon a story about a group of Jewish concentration camp survivors who returned to their small town of Kielce in Poland, and their homes were already taken over by their neighbors. So they were put up in a hotel, and over the course of the next couple of months, the rumors and conspiracy theories flew about what the Jews were doing and they're trying to get their land back and how can we stop them? 
And that ultimately turned into communal violence that was sanctioned by the state. Basically, the police stood by and watched Mm -hmm. and allowed it to go on for two days and and a lot of people were killed. And I thought, oh, my God, these people lived in concentration camps. They survived two or three years in concentration camps only to come back, try to establish home and be murdered by their neighbors. I thought that's as brutal as it gets. So then I started to do deeper research and found out that it wasn't this one-off experience in Kielce. It was happening all over Eastern Europe and Russia at the time. And I thought, I'm a pretty educated and learned and read fellow. How could I not know about this? And I realized there was a lot of academic literature on it, especially in Eastern Europe, but nothing really in the popular realm. So I decided, what's the best way to take this out there? And I thought, I'll do a fictional quilt of all these incidents in novel form. And that way, if it's a good story with good characters, anybody will read it, and then they can get the information. If I did it as a nonfiction book, then the only people who read it are people who already agree with it Yeah, from the title, right? Right. Because I have so many books on my shelf. I say, my my bookshelf doesn't need a chiropractor because there's not a broken spine on the shelf. (laughs) You know, I buy the book for the title because I agree with it, and then I don't read it. (laughs) Sorry, it's true. I know you out there in in radio land, you understand that. Yeah. Some of us still read books. Yes, we read your book. Uh, Dean Sikon, who is of Dean's Beans fame, but has a new book called Finding Home, Hungary, 1945, his first work of fiction. I know you wrote Java Trekker and some other... uh, Right. Actually, my first published Published work, work my first published work was when I was eight. (laughs) I, I received a silver medal from Mayor John Lindsay of New York City for writing the second best fire prevention essay in the city. <laughs> but that is not non that's nonfiction. That's no, nonfiction. Uh, that's how you get the get the gears going. Oh yeah, Fair right. Enough. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, this is my first work of fiction, but not my last. I love the way that you know, there's an intellectual leap that you may make uh, between I was a coffee magnate and uh, before that a lawyer and now I'm a fiction author. There are it's a beautiful book, though. I mean, it is a compelling book. You've got a blurb from one of our, our favorite you know, local authors, Jane Yolen, mm-hmm. who is as good as it gets when it comes to writing fiction. Oh, yeah. This is a truth-telling historical novel at its best where the author has not flinched and the reader cannot put the book down. It is beautifully written. But despite you just put the, the book down. I know, I did. Jane, false advertising. No, <laughs> um, was it hard for you to work in this mode, in, in fiction in this way, when you had not previously no not in fiction it, that that's that actually comes natural to me um, I've been faking it for years <laughs> <laughs> no you know I, I love to tell stories and all of my time at Dean's Beans I was taking the information from the coffee lands and our experiences and, and telling stories about it so I'm I'm really accustomed to doing that and I love the creative process whether it's creative nonfiction or creating fiction. I used to have a radio show at Williams College when I was there f- during the 70s called Uncle Dean and Tiddlywinks. <sighs> and it was all animals, you know, and Dean telling stories. And it was basically fictionalized news. Uh-huh. And it was great fun. So I've been doing this for a while. <laughs> but I want to share with you something about that, that leap from Dean's Beans to, to novel writing. I have actually, th- the basis of both is research. I have been a deep researcher for years. I was a a research fellow at Woods Hole Oceanographic. I was a research fellow as a Fulbright scholar in New Zealand working with Maori people. 
I was a research fellow at college and, and law school. I love research. So historical fiction, which requires really deep research, yeah. Yeah. just it's, it's a joy for me. The hard part is the marketing. That's why I'm here. <laughs> Help. <laughs> We're speaking with Dean Sykon, who is pushing forward his book, Finding Home, Hungary, 1945. He'll be at the Leverett Library tomorrow, Tuesday, the 17th, and then at the Jones Library a week from Tuesday in Amherst. Oh, let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back and talk more about this book. That, because it's pretty fantastic. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. We're speaking with Dean Sikon of Dean's Beans fame. He has a new book called Finding Home, Hungary, 1945. It is historical fiction and takes place just post Holocaust and deals with the idea of returning to a home where you are displaced even there and are no longer wanted by your community. But some of the threads of displacement are like so wide reaching. Like there's a point where one of your main characters, Eva, uh, is denied. She thinks she's been denied acceptance into an academy, but that does that isn't the case. They've started readmitting Jewish uh, Jewish applicants, and there's all of these little things that there's this disconnect in the in people attempting to reconnect with their homes that I thought was really fascinating and really does kind of um, sadly connect to things that are currently happening. Would you talk about like just finding those moments of disconnect and trying to highlight them? You in the book itself or oh, yeah, in, in the, the book, world? In the book itself, because in the world we'll let's let's keep it to fiction for now. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well most of the, some of the disconnect was that um the townspeople were in denial of their own responsibility for de- helping deport the Jews from the town. Some of it is from <clears throat> people not wanting to give back the property that they got, and then so find, trying to find a justification for not giving back the goodies, because uh, and and the and the government at the time encouraged people to take over Jewish property to help create a middle class, right? So what's that about? That's about getting people to be against the other people by othering them and promising these people goodies that will be taken away if those other people come in. This is all right out of the headlines. This is one of the reasons I was so drawn to this story. Everything that's going on in this book is happening somewhere in the world in the last, in my lifetime, and happening right now, obviously. But so, yeah, and then there's, then there's other times when people just simply didn't understand. Well, let me, let me scratch that. There are other times when the legal system or the academic admission system was was disconnected to the situation of people returning. So uh, files were lost. People on the inside were trying to sabotage the Jews coming back. There's a lot of things going on there that, as I was doing the real research, you know, I, as I said, this is a fictional quilt of a lot of true stories. So pretty much everything that happens in this book is an experience that some Jewish person or people had trying to return home and the justifications and the actions on the sides of the townspeople are things that came out of my research and interviews with people in Poland and Hungary. So basically this is a true story and it's so sad that 
so many people have read it and contacted me and said either, wow, this is the story of my grandparents, or wow, this is the story of my community, whether it's Palestinians, LGBTQ, or uh, uh, a trans community. I, I've, I've heard from so many people how this resonates with their current struggles. So it's like, well, it's not that there's a parallel. It's that these dynamics never end in the human condition about othering, bystanding, uh, failure to have empathy. Yeah. Yeah. It's oddly too resonant with what's been going on right now, but yet still stunningly beautiful. Um, one of the scenes, we're running out of time here, that is really gripping to me is how desperately your main, one of your main characters, Ava, wants to be back with her piano. And it becomes a driving force in, in her return. You've got your chapter breaks are musical notations. Hmm. If we open this book, do those musical notations, are they something you can actually play? And if so, what? Yes, that that musical notation that that is the break between scenes is actually the opening line to Ravel's Kaddish, ah. which is a theme in the book. Mm-hmm. It right? certainly is. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Dean Sycon of Dean's Beans fame, now a fiction author, Finding Home, Hungary, 1945. It's haunting, it's beautiful, it's chilling, and it's hopeful. I think at the same time, you will be at the Leverett Library tomorrow, October 17th, and then at the Jones Library a week from tomorrow. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. It was a great great visit. It was great to talk to you. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure to read the book. (laughs) Tomorrow on The Fabulous 413, New York Times bestselling author Holly Black from Amherst, who has co-written a children's book called Sir Morian with someone in the studio. It's me. I'm the other person. Dang right. It's you. I'm very excited to talk about this book as it comes out. We'll also talk with a woman who just finished finished swimming the entire length of the Connecticut River. And we'll take you on a tour of Mycoterra Mushroom Farm in South Deerfield because mushrooms are amazing. They are amazing. Special thanks to Spouse, Happy Valley Guitar Orchestra, XTC, Bad Bunny, Vladimir Horowitz, and Franz Liszt. Our director is Tony Long Road to Recovery Done. Our engineers are Betsy now at the third rodeo, Langto, Phil, not Glass Bishop, Kara finally escaped on time, Foster, Bart, broken window, broken Wilco's Rankin, and punk, <laughs> rude boy, sharp, sharp cheddar, cheddar. Dubé. We'll see you tomorrow on the fabulous 413. So we will. Mm-hmm.